Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast, where we're at glacial speed going through the Library of America's anthology on Civil War writings. Um, sorry, this is taking so long, but it's it's work. It's it's really not that these aren't uh, fun and interesting to read. It's just just work has been uh, draining. Um, we'll see if I can kind of reorient my my approach or my schedule or something to to get a little bit more of this done um but that's okay um slowing down once in a while is fine um so we we just finished an episode covering mostly the the six days battle the peninsula campaign the failure of the attack on richmond um so that brings us to uh this next set of documents which i think are really important these are um this is the period of time, summer of 62, when Lincoln kind of commits himself internally to, to emancipation more broadly. We've seen like the baby steps for emancipation uh, in the other documents, you know, like military emancipation, the Confiscation Act, uh, the push for uh, compensating emancipation in the border states, uh, the the push to end slavery in Washington D.C. These are all things that that Lincoln was doing, making clear steps towards towards um, the end of slavery. But it's really in the summer of '62 that Lincoln believe you know comes to the conclusion that it's a military necessity to to emancipate the slaves. Um, you know, of course, he his first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation was written during this time. Um, it's not like issued until after the Battle of Antietam. It doesn't take effect until the I think it's first of January, right, of '63. But it's really, uh, you know, it's it's there. It's ready to go. Um, it's also where we see his famous letter where he says, "Like I'll save the Union without freeing any slaves. I'd do it if I could free the save the Union by freeing all the slaves. I would do it." And this has often been said, well, Lincoln didn't really care about emancipation. But when he said this, that first draft was done, was already you know, like ready to go. So I guess uh, that's just Lincoln being a, a politician. In terms of military affairs, um, we see the, 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 the Union forming a new army in Virginia um, called, you know, called the Army of, the, of Virginia. Kind of parallel to the Army of the Potomac, this was made up of various troops that were like around Washington and ones that were defeated by General Jackson in that Shenandoah campaign, which there aren't really many documents about in this collection, even though I think that's it's kind of famous for lost causes or something because it's kind of you see you see Jackson's success and and he's such a popular figure among the lost causes along with like Lee, so. But the, anyways, there were troops left over from that campaign. They came together and formed a new army, right? And this is the army that would fight in the the, the second battle of Bull Run. Um, but anyways, that's really where we begin, though, is with uh, the formation of this new army uh, under John Pope uh, in July of 62. And we get his address, his, like, welcoming address. Um, and... You know, he's kind of seen as like one of the series of failed generals before you get to Grant, right? Or before you get to George Meade, I suppose. In in late sixty two, early sixty three, um, because he is defeated at the at the second battle of Bull Run, 
But his attitude is that he's coming out of the West, and his attitude is like, we won, we're winning in the West because we're, we're putting pressure, we're, we're taking the offensive, we're taking the war to the enemy. And that's kind of what he says to the, to the troops in the Army of Virginia. Um, his, for instance, his first order um, that we get, we, well, I guess they're not this first, but there are some general orders he issued early in his command Which I think prefigures a little bit of Sherman's strategy in in '64 and the March to the Sea stuff, is he says basically we're going to live off the Southern land and we're going to give vouchers. He says we'll pay for it with like vouchers, but not with actual money. And you know the question is, would it ever be paid back? Would those debts ever be repaid? Probably not much. Certainly, the people who got these vouchers probably didn't think they were ever going to get anything for it. But this idea of of living off the land. And simultaneously funding the the military, but also hurting the South, is, is that's important here. Quote: um, In all cases, for this purpose, will be taken by the officers of the departments. They properly belong under the command of officers for troops for use there intended. Oh, here it is: The troops of this command will subsist upon the country, and vouchers will be paid to owners. So it's a short uh, order. This is order number five he gave, <clears throat> but it's. Uh, it's pretty clear change in, in, in strategy um, that, that again, I, I think Sherman would, would embrace later on. He's got another order here, Order 7, where he's really being quite draconian towards like saboteurs or people who are working behind Union lines to sabotage equipment. And he basically uh, lays down pretty harsh laws about that, including executions of offenders. And then the final one is uh, order to arrest uh, disloyal people within areas of, of union control. So these, I don't want to say infamous. Uh, the way the editors here talk about it is that they were seen at the time as, as like tyrannical documents. I don't remember hearing too much about these before. Maybe I, I've, I came across it in some, some document, but compared to like the Butler order, in New Orleans, this one doesn't seem to have the same legs. But anyways. Uh, so what do we have next here? Um, Fitz John Porter to Joseph Kennedy. This this letter... Uh, now, General Porter is a, a general in the Army of the Potomac. And he was pretty close to McClellan. So he's he's just... Talk, you see here a lot of the frustration over the state of the army at this point. Like Pope's army is a bunch of troops that were defeated before, or, or they weren't ones on the Peninsula campaign, so I guess they weren't the best to begin with. So there wasn't a lot of faith in that command. There really wasn't faith in the Army of the Potomac either, due to its recent defeats. Uh, and McClellan's losing favor in Washington, so there's a lot of uh, just general malaise in this in this particular letter. After that, after that defeat of the six six days battle, um, so what do we have next? Next, we have a, a letter, um, August Belmont to Thurlow Weed, Thurlow Weed. So this is a, a letter uh, between like two politically important people, but not not politicians, I don't think, and not generals. Um, but it was meant to to be seen by Lincoln. You know, it was one of those things that would have got to Lincoln eventually. Um, and it did. And so Belmont here is arguing that 
basically more he he's part of the so-called war democrat faction which was a group that um you know opposed lincoln but wanted to see a peaceful negotiation so kind of the remnants of like maybe like the stephen douglas type of um politicians those who you know were for the union democrats for that, that were against secession and were supportive of the war to the effect it ended secession but weren't interested in a social revolution and certainly wanted the negotiated peace as soon as possible um, and he gives the argument for why he wanted that and basically he's saying if if we're going to spend 10 years destroy you know defeating this rebellion giving them 10 years to build up another state, giving them 10 years to build up resentment against us, they're not going to be able to come back into the Union. So there's some urgency in ending the war sooner. And he also talks about just to really defeat this rebellion, how many men are we going to need, right? 300,000 is not going to do it. 500,000 is probably not going to do it. You know, we might be talking about millions of men needed to finally bring down this rebellion. And of course, there's truth to that. Um <clears throat> claim and, and Lincoln can hear this and say well maybe we do need to arm these former slaves right and, and that's of course another thing that did happen to help end the war um, so this this is so the argument here is let's let's actually um, it's risky to keep the war going on too long even though I support the war it's risky to keep it going on too long he even brings up the Monroe Doctrine here at one point I think suggesting that the longer this goes on, the less likely we will be able to maintain the Monroe Doctrine, keeping Europe out of New World affairs. So this is kind of an interesting document that I never, I, I never knew too much about. So the next thing we have are kind of like essentially it's a letter from Salmon P. Chase, the Secretary of Treasury, to Richard Parsons, who I don't know who he is. Um, this is. Uh, kind of a summary of I guess he's a friend or something um, but what he's he's basically saying what's the situation after the seven days battle six days battle seven days did I say six before seven days the seven days battle uh, I think it was six battles over seven days and he's been saying like it was kind of a disaster uh, you know we should have won we should have taken Richmond we had the troops to do it we had the plan but um, but there was a failure, and now Lincoln is not willing to get rid of McClellan, which Chase seems to have a problem with. I think Chase wants to move on from him. He's also frustrated that the president is, seems to be waffling on the slavery question. He writes, the slavery question perplexes the president almost as much as ever, and yet I think he's about to emerge from his obscurities where he's been groping into somewhat clearer light. Again, very uh, truthful, right? Because... It is in this summer, later in the summer of 62, that he's going to commit to emancipation, at least for himself, if not publicly yet. Um, so that's that. Um, we got another Samuel P. Chase document, this time from his journal, dated just a day after that letter, I think. Yeah, a couple days after the letter. And I think this supports the, the observation that Chase made that Lincoln's coming out of the light, coming into the light or whatever uh, on the slavery question. And I think, I, I, for me, I think he was always there as just the political necessities that he constantly worried about. So there was a meeting with the president, like a cabinet meeting, and, you know, there's a question of arming slaves, which, uh, 
the president did not want to adopt, but, quote, proposed to issue a proclamation on the basis of the Confiscation Act, calling upon the states to return to their allegiance, adding on their own part a declaration, declaration of intent to renew at the end of the session of the Congress his recommendation for compensated emancipation in the border states. There's some editing there and how he read it, but... So, this meeting suggests he has something like an Emancipation Proclamation, and he's... Of course, that doesn't apply to the border states, so his plan for there is compensated emancipation. So, the full plan for freeing the slaves is, is here by July 62, um, according to this... Uh, kind of minute, uh, private minutes of the meeting. Also, uh, a call to uh, to mobilize more troops is is needed, but uh, not quite decided yet by the cabinet. And that's what we get next. Same day as that meeting, um, we have the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which isn't worded as well as the next one. So it definitely is a first draft. It's kind of kind of janky, I think, the way it's worded. Um, it does seem to be, um, like he talked about the gradual abolishment of slavery within those states in rebellion. I think that's changed in the final, like it's immediate in the final Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's historically significant, obviously, but I, I didn't realize how kind of Not straight. This this document is compared to what we know as the the final version of it, which we'll see in a little bit. Um. So what's next? Uh, Fran Francis B. Carpenter. He wrote a book six months in the White House with Abraham Lincoln. He was the portrait painter. Um. So he he's the guy who painted the the doc the painting with Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation, which you may have seen. At some point, it's a pretty famous um, portrait. But so, he, so, but so he's sort of in on the meetings, overhearing them and things. Um, and we see some of the discussion and the debate among cabinet members over this, especially Secretary Chase. Quote, Secretary Chase wished the language stronger in reference to the arming of blacks. Mr. Blair, after he came in, deprecated the policy on the grounds that it would cost the administration the fall elections. Stewart approved the proclamation, but questions the expediency of its issue at this juncture. Uh, end quote. So you, you kind of have a team of rivals moment there, which is kind of nice. Um, anyways, next. Uh, oh, we got the Lincoln letter to Bullitt. Um, this is the famous letter where he he's writing to these New Orleans uh, unionists, right? These supporters of, of at least union, if not emancipation, in Louisiana. And um, you know, and we see here a hardening of, of Lincoln's resolve in a way towards the necessity to continue the struggle on and to put all hands on deck, all strategies there. And of course, emancipation will be part of that strategy. Um, not just a military necessity, though, something that Lincoln believed deeply in, but, you know, he had, he, he had to wait for the right moment, right? Um, I mean, some of this language, though, is, is pretty... Uh, pretty tough uh, on people who might be more willing to compromise, right? Uh, like those unionists in the South, like the war Democrats might be okay with some compromise, but Lincoln seems to be moving away from that a little bit. Um, quote, uh, look, of course the rebellion will never be suppressed in Louisiana, he writes, if the professed union men there will neither help nor do it, nor permit the government to do it without their help. 
So actually asking for aid in pursuing the war. All right, so next we have uh, Charles Sumner and John Bright dealing with... Uh, uh, now, Charles Sumner was a senator from Massachusetts, and he was kind of advising Lincoln on some issues regarding slavery. And then we have uh, uh, John Bright as an English uh, supporter of the, the United States in this struggle. And this is dealing with... Uh, some economic issues that are a concern to the British. Um, so for instance, uh, he, he does talk about the slavery issue here in this letter. He writes, there have been some differences of opinion on questions of policy, especially on slavery. This was to be expected, but the bill of confiscation and liberation, which was the last passed under pressure from our reserves at Richmond is a practical act of emancipation. It was only in this respect that I valued it. The Western men were eager in reaching for the property of the rebels. To this, I was indifferent, except for so far as it was necessary to break up the strongholds of slavery, end quote. So you see Sumner here not concerned as uh, with the military necessity issues, just wanting the war to lead to the end of slavery, I suppose. It's a little, um, I mean, that's certainly the right side of history. It's the right, he's right on that position, but his, I mean, being indifferent to it seems obviously confiscation of not just these former slaves, um, but, you know, the property was necessary for the war effort, which he, of course, wants them to win. He's just making his emphasis here. Um, now, the economic issues they're talking about is kind of the impact this is going to have on, on, on cotton. And he basically admits England's not going to get U.S. American cotton, uh, and of course, we, we know from our studies of world history that the British did expand cotton production in other parts of the world. That's why they didn't become reliant. This was something the Confederacy really wanted to believe true. They wanted to believe that, this, that England needed their cotton and therefore would intervene on their behalf. Obviously, that never happened. Um, Oh, we got a little document here, Henry Halleck to George McClellan about evacuating the peninsula. I didn't realize how long the Army of the Potomac kind of hung out in the peninsula after the seven days battle like that's almost a month later and they're still working on the logistics of moving them back and you think of how long it took to get that campaign set up you know moving the troops there getting them out was just as much of a of a of a burden and that's, that's um, you know mcclellan certainly had this reputation by later observers of being kind of someone who stood on his hands and didn't act and maybe there's some truth to that i don't know you know, what would that have meant for, like, the battle of Second Battle of Bull Run had McClellan's army been in a better position to participate in that? Now, of course, we've been focusing a lot on, so far to, in this episode, on kind of top-down attitudes towards emancipation and Lincoln, especially in Lincoln's and his advisors. But we got a wonderful document here dated August 62, uh, which is a written by a committee of citizens in Liberty County, Georgia. And this is one of those coastal areas that were taken by the Union. Um, and it had a huge number of runaway slaves, right? Wherever the Union Army was, or Union positions were, you had a huge number of runaway slaves. Um, I, I think I remember reading somewhere that about a quarter of US slaves ran away during the Civil War. I mean, the Civil War was a slave rebellion in addition to a, a civil war. 
I mean, one out of four? I mean, we we talk about the great resignation these days as, you know, and that's like a few percentage increase in the number of people who like quit their jobs. And that's called the great resignation. And it has all these consequences on wages and, and the economy. It's big news, right? Now, a quarter, I mean, that's, talk about a great resignation. This was the great resignation of American history. Um, we're basically one out of every four slaves. And you got to see many of those slaves are old. Many are children. Many are women with children. So if a million run, ran away, how many couldn't run away? It might, if you separate those out, like the, probably about half weren't in a position to run away because they either had children or they were too old or there just weren't anywhere near the Union Army, right? That, that means like almost half, half of the, that workforce ran away. And you got to presume most didn't want to work. And there's other types of resistance, right? Where you had people laying down tools, forcing owners to pay wages. All kinds of examples of these things during the war. Um, it's one reason a lot of elite women were writing back to their husbands, come back home, you know, it's, things aren't going well here. But so this memorial is just talking about the, the large number of, of runaway slaves and the protections they need under the military and all of that. So uh, really a great document, I think. So um, one response of the Confederacy to these moves to emancipate slaves was uh, Confederate War Department General Order Number 60, in which uh, basically individual people were were sort of targeted as like you know, arming rebel, like freeing slaves and told and, and declared felons against the against their government. Um, quote, Major General Hunter and Brigadier General Phelps will be no longer held and treated as public enemies of the Confederate States, but as outlaws and that the event of the capture of either of them or that of any of the commissioned officers employed in drilling, organizing, or instructing slaves with a view of their armed service in the war shall not be regarded as prisoners of war, but held in close confinement for execution as a felon." End quote. We see here certainly the precursor to some of the attitude later towards armed um, black men in the military. They, they were executed, like at the Fort Pillow Massacre. They were re-enslaved in some cases. Uh, they weren't treated as prisoners of war. Um, so the Confederate uh, willingness to set aside uh, the basic rules of war as they were understood at the time um, were, were clear here. And this, this is an early document, even though it was targeting some white people. They do the same thing to others. All right, next we have uh, August 1862 address on colonization. And once again, I think we got a we, we got the public face of Lincoln versus his private thoughts. I'm not sure how much Lincoln deep down believed colonization was possible or, or, or whatever. The fact that Congress, you know, appropriated something like less than a million dollars, which a lot of money in those days, but still not enough to get anywhere near colonizing 4 million people outside of the United States. It just makes me think that this is, for political show. This is political cover. This is so he can say, I understand the concerns of uh, these more racist anti-slavery folks um, who don't like slavery, but also don't want black people in the United States. You know, so I'm going to put forth this colonization stuff. 
Um, that's kind of been my position throughout the series. And when I did this stuff on Lincoln, that's kind of what I think too. I don't know. Maybe someone can show me um, evidence that Lincoln actually was committed to colonization beyond just token, token it like a, that's the wrong word for, it, I suppose, but uh, I kind of, it kind of works, right? It's just a, you know, some people did colonize to Liberia or someplace like that, but vast majority didn't and didn't want to and those that did often had really good reasons for doing it right and i think this came up in some of our other series in the past where some people really kind of had a had a faith in africa right of like a precursor to like the back to africa movement of the 20th century and black nationalism i just don't believe for a minute lincoln gave speeches like this on colonization um, for any other reason besides to to provide some political cover for his real policy, which is the first draft of which is still in his desk, of uh, his his real policy of of total complete uncompensated emancipation in rebel states. All right, now we have the the Greeley letter. This is the one uh, I think everyone has probably heard of. I'll just read the famous quote again, because I did it during the Lincoln series. Um, I do not agree with them. Um, or sorry, I'll go back a little bit. Um, the sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the union will be the union as it was. If there be those who would say, who would not save the union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount objective in the struggle is to save the Union, and it's not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery, the colored race, I do because it'll help save the Union. End quote. Um, you know, it's not inconsistent. This isn't inconsistent with the Emancipation Proclamation, of course. Someone could see that document purely as military, military necessity, but that also I don't really quite believe. I, I, I think it's complex. I think there's part of Lincoln that, that you know, wanted to end slavery for his, his entire life, and the war became the political context for that to happen. I do think his priority was saving the Union, um, and at the same time, it was a military necessity to free the slaves and to arm them. So it's all of those things are true at the same time. Um, but certainly one thing with the Blood Slaughter you got to remember is he did have Emancipation Proclamation draft in his desk. All right, next. Oh, Sherman. We haven't heard from Sherman in a while. Sherman to uh, Thomas Hunton, who was like a classmate back in West Point. And he's kind of explaining the army's policy towards uh, these this, this so-called contraband, um, fugitive slaves or whatever. And he says, like, we're, we're not really taking women or children. It's mostly men. We put them to work. So he kind of sells it as military necessity, as for, uh, of course. And, and Sherman certainly wasn't uh, an abolitionist. Uh, so he's probably, we can take this document on face value to a certain degree that this is what he found the value of doing of, of using slaves um, now of course the person he's writing is a Mississippi plantation owner so he's kind of writing him about this like why are you guys freeing all our slaves and Sherman writes back you know this is why we're doing it so 
that's that. So the next document we have is by a historian, John Lothard Motley. And he was like the ambassador to Austria at the time. Um, and he writes to William H. Stewart, the Secretary of State. So this is a pretty uh, straightforward document you'd see in like the Secretary of State's papers. Um, but it's kind of wonderful. It's kind of amazing. Because um, this guy is really in tune with like how foreign powers are going to cease to see emancipation. You know, like he even gets into some details about like how the British um, and their kind of complex attitudes that there's some like politicians who see slavery in more economical terms and see the cotton trade as crucial, but they can't publicly come forward because of the population's anti-slavery sentiments. Like, for instance, no public man in England, he writes, dares confront the anti-slavery feeling, which is universal in the nation. The French emperor, as you are well aware, and is perfectly well known to the government here, has been perpetually soliciting the English to join him in armed intervention in our affairs, end quote. So then there's the issue of the French and Louis Napoleon, who was the emperor of France at the time, who, according to this, might want to intervene, but the British aren't really willing to do it. And it's like a, like the economic interest versus the public opinion is is important and it's like dealt with differently in different systems because you know france went back to monarchy under louis napoleon so that's really kind of like some of the nuance there i found really fascinating and what's really awesome about this document is he says okay the you know england is not going to be able to publicly support slavery right so they're not going to be able to help france right but there's still this risk there's still a risk that um, that might happen, that French movements to maybe recognize the Confederacy or something might happen. So he recommends a proclamation, a formal proclamation in, quote, unequivocal and bold language with compensation to loyal masters would make it impossible, end quote. So it's a little bit different than what the Emancipation Proclamation does. Lincoln dispenses with compensation um, just because... That's the Confiscation Act, right? The Confiscation Act allows uncompensated um, seizure. Um, but it's the, the idea that this is going to help us diplomatically. The Emancipation Proclamation will help us diplomatically is what's fascinating about this document. All right, so the next document we have is uh, Harriet Jacobs writing to William Lloyd Garrison. Now, if you've never read Harriet Jacobs, you should do it. You should go out and do it. Maybe, maybe I'll do the slave narratives uh next after the civil war series it might be a good follow-up to it it's just one volume but i think it has harry jacobs in there and if not i'll add it just because it's so good um not only is it one of the a handful of slave narratives by a a woman it deals so much with like the intimacy of the master-slave relationship and the you know how like tensions and frustrate you know sexual frustration and sexual violence is such a part of this relationship and her escape attempt, like living in an attic for years, it's so good. It's so good. Um, but she here is writing um, as Linda Brent. I think that's the same name she wrote her autobiography under. Um, and she's talking about uh, how the abolitionists can help uh, these so-called contraband slaves, fugitive slaves, whatever. And she is really, really... Uh, forward thinking in this document. She talks about things like the need to establish schools, things that are going to be issues in Reconstruction. 
right? That's another dot volume. If I wish I had the reconstruction volume. That'd be another great coda to this series, I would think. A very similar type of document book collection, but it's set in the the reconstruction era. But I, I just don't have that one. But you know, this, this is some of the issues you talked about are reconstruction issues, right? Um, things about property, uh, things about you know. Listen to this. Um, do not say the slaves take no interest in each other. Like other people, some of them are decidedly selfish and some are ig ignorantly selfish. With the light and instruction you give them, you'll see the selfishness disappear. Trust them, make them free, and give them the responsibility of caring for themselves so that they will still learn to help each other. Some of them have been so degraded by slavery that they know that they do not know the uses of civilized life. They know little else than the handle of the hoe. The plow and the cotton pad and the overseer's lash. Have patience with them. You have helped the, to make them what they are. Teach them civilization. You owe it to them. End quote. So she's making a case for schools, especially uplifting young people. Um, but such an important part of the Reconstruction program was public schools. And how much do we owe public schools, universal public education, to the Reconstruction governments? And to, in this sense, to people like Harry Jacobs, making that an issue uh, even before the war ended. Um, great, great stuff here. Um, so now we're going to move to the second battle of Bull Run, or the so-called Second Manassas Campaign. So we're back to Edward Porter Alexander, a document I hated before. I think it was what was it was the Seven Days Battle. I think um, he wrote that fighting for the Confederacy years later, uh, and that, that's the document where he kind of shits on some of his commanders a little bit and that's fine they deserve to be shit on a little bit but if you like military history which i don't dislike i think i just read so much when i was really young i read like the battlefield stuff right and i still like games uh that that explore those things i like sabaton's music I like military history dealing with like the social issues. So when I read military history, it's like, like, uh, like Foster's book, this Republic of suffering or books about the home front or things like that, or the, even books about the army, but about like soldiers lives and things. That's what I uh, am reading politics of war, that kind of stuff. The battlefield tactics. I don't know. It's and the, the day to day, not even the day to day, kind of the, the troop movements, and all that stuff. Kind of makes my eyes glaze over, I'm sorry to say. And this is a document kind of like that. Um, of course, the Confederacy won the Second Battle of Bull Run, and it was a, a not insignificant battle. I don't know if it was strategically that important, but uh, uh, Lee lost about uh, 7,000 men, 6,200 wounded, 1,000 killed, and the Union lost... Uh, Almost double that. I mean, a massive loss. Of course, this army was a, kind of a hodgepodge. Yeah, the Army of Virginia, 51,000 men, which was made up itself of a hodgepodge, like Washington defenders and Shenandoah Valley losers and losers from the Army of the Potomac. Um, so they were probably demoralized. Not saying they were losers as a, you know, they literally lost battles, right? Um, but probably maybe a bit dis de dis de uh, de um, demoralized. And, you know, but, you know, 77,000 men, Lee had 50,000, and they just get smashed, the looks of it. 
Looking at these casualty numbers on Wikipedia, though, when I read this, like, 6,000 wounded and 1,000 killed, like, how many of those were wounded for, like, on the day of the battle and died two days later, right? Are you killed only if you're dead on the battlefield? If you die in the hospital a week later? Are you, are you counted as wounded? I, I don't know how these, these things work. I assume that's how it's being counted. But anyways, I think it's the only document we get on... on that maybe uh, some other yeah maybe we get a few other accounts here they're coming up um but anyways the next document we have charles francis adams uh jr talking writing to his father remember charles uh, francis adams jr is in the army and charles francis adams is of course the ambassador to england and here we see his frustration with the uh, leadership in the army and uh, after another defeat Quote, our rulers seem to me to be crazy. The air of this city seems thick with treachery. Our army seems in the danger of utter demoralization. And I have not, I have not since the war began, felt such a tug on my nerves as today in Washington. Everything is ripe for a terrible panic, the end of which I cannot see or even imagine. Poor guy. Uh, so next we have John Chamberlain to Martha Burwell Chamberlain. This is an account of the Second Battle of Bull Run from a... Uh, uh, another confederate perspective uh, i don't have too much to say about this one um it does mention that the the invasion north because like, that's of course what happens after this is lee invades uh maryland um not too much anyways he, he becomes part of the staff of of general hill that's that's sort of his perspective more administrative i guess next we have john pope to henry halleck complaining about uh the disorderly nature of the retreat from bull run this is the second time the union army had a kind of disastrous retreat from this region and um and there's actually uh people who got like punished because of this letter it seems um fitz John Porter was was court-martialed for these charges for on charges that are brought up in this letter. Now he might be vic he might be he might be blaming other people for his defeat, but you know I don't know how much one general could be blamed for 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 things. I mean, fog of war and just how do you manage this? It's 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 hard. War's hard. Um, but he is trying to shift blame a little bit, I guess. He writes, you have hardly the idea of the demoralization among officers of high rank in the Potomac Army arising in all instances from personal feelings in relation to changes of commander-in-chief and others. These men are mere tools and parasites, but their example is producing and must necessarily produce very disastrous results. You should know these things as you alone can stop them. Um, so he's also, but he's probably true. It's also probably true that like moral, morale is really down. Command structures are breaking down. And something needs to be done about it. So uh, next we have Clara Barton to John Shaver writing about uh, wounded soldiers. Uh, this is also from a, a Union point of view. She later on f f helped found the American Red Cross. And she, you know, this is gruesome stuff as always, um, you know. Buckets and buckets of blood is, is this the image I get whenever I read these these 
things from nurses. I mean, they saw it. They saw much more horror, or at least as much horror as the men on the battlefield did. When you read those casualty numbers and it's like a thousand dead and six, seven thousand wounded, it's like those nurses are bearing the brunt of that horror um, in a very real sense. And it doesn't end, right? It's it's ongoing and it's you know le legs being cut off. It's it's nasty stuff, right? Um, it's it's surprising they held together as long as they did. Uh, so next we have Gideon Wells' diary. Gideon Wells, again, was the Secretary of the Navy. I think we haven't seen a document from him in a while, but he's uh, um, he's upset with McClellan. He's blaming McClellan for Pope's loss at the Second Battle of Bull Run because he didn't bring up enough troops. He brought some, but they weren't really fully engaged, it sounds like. So really, Pope was kind of left on his own, even though... Remember how sluggishly they're moving out of the peninsula and getting back in position? So Gideon basically says, McClellan's got to go. Uh, he's uh, can't have him around anymore, and that would eventually happen after Antietam, right? He remains in command until until after the Battle of of Antietam, and then you have like is it is it Hooker for a while, and then Meade, and then finally Grant comes over as overall commander of of the armies, but he moves to Virginia to pursue the war there uh, in the Overland Campaign. So that's that's a kind of revolving door of generals. But uh, McClellan remained in command uh, at this point, but not everyone's happy about it. Certainly not Gideon Wells. And I'll leave you on a down note with uh, the diary of John Hay from September 1st, 1862, uh, who was one of Lincoln's secretaries. And he just concludes, we've been once again defeated. And we see Lincoln's frustration for that in this document. So even though, but but this is really a document about Lincoln because you're, it's really the secretary reporting on what Lincoln is, is seeing and doing and saying, but he's really got the resolve. And I think that's so key to, to the Union winning this war because um, stronger forces don't always win wars. Um, and he says, we must hurt the enemy before it gets away. And this morning, Monday, he said to me when I made a remark in regard to the bad look of things, no, Mr. Hay, we must whip these people now. Pope must fight them. If they are too strong for him, he can gradually retire to these fortifications. If this be not so, if we are really whipped and to be whipped, we may as well stop fighting. Unquote. So, you know, being defeated and being whipped here are, are kind of different uh, concepts. So anyways, uh, that's uh, where we'll leave off today. We have uh, basically just one major battle. This uh, second Battle of Bull Run. Um, but mostly we've been talking about the movement towards emancipation in uh, with the draft of the Emancipation Proclamation and the diplomacy around it, uh, some of the other issues uh, surrounding that. Um, so what's going on next? Uh, well, the next episode will center really on the Battle of Antietam, I guess. They're all set in September. The whole, everything in the next episode will be September 1862. So that's when the battle in Maryland the Battle of, of Antietam takes place. And of course, that's what leads to the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which might be in this next 100 pages. I think it is. Yeah, it's the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, the official ones uh, at the, at the, at the, on the 1st of January. So that's what we can look forward to. I actually haven't read them because I'm so far behind, but uh, I will later today. 
and be ready to talk about them in the future. So um, anyways, again, apologies for delay in putting out these episodes, um, but I think it's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, but that's going to be it for now. I will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Uh, in the meantime, let me know what you uh, what your thoughts on any of this are. Send me an email or a uh, uh, send me a tweet or something like that if you have any thoughts. Um, see you next time.